Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, challenging controlled substance offenses under the INA in the Eighth Circuit, looks at a recent decision by the Eighth Circuit which states drug offenses may no longer form a basis for deportation. The panelists explained why, under this new precedent, cocaine may not be cocaine, methamphetamine may not be methamphetamine, and isomers may make most drug convictions overbroad, and how immigration and criminal defense attorneys can use this precedent to secure better outcomes for their clients. The panel includes John Bruning, the Supervising Litigation Attorney with the Advocates for Human Rights, Lauren Butler, a detainee rights clinic student with the Binger Center for New Americans at Minnesota Law, Susan Jorgensen Flores, an immigration attorney for the Minnesota State Board of Public Defense. The discussion is moderated by Linus Chan, Associate Professor of Clinical Law and the Director of the Detainee Rights Clinic at Minnesota Law. This event was recorded on February 17, 2023. A video replay of the lecture is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Why don't I just really quickly uh, start with a bit of information about uh, who we are and a little bit of an agenda and how we'll get there. Um, First of all, apologies for some of the technical issues. Um, For those of you who don't know us, uh, we are the Bigger Center for New Americans, which is part of the University of Minnesota Law School and part of the law school's clinical programs. Uh, We have right now four running clinics Um, That includes the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic, run by Professor Steve Miley, uh, the Federal Immigration Litigation Clinic, run by Nadia and Guiana Weed. We have uh, the Detainee Rights Clinic, which is a clinic that I direct here, as well as the Rural Access Clinic, uh, which is run by Sarah Brennis, who is our Executive Director. Uh, we've been, we first uh, were created in 2013 through a pilot program, and we are now uh, permanently endowed. And so, part of this program, Mahmoud, who is on here as uh, as well, is our outreach coordinator. Um, and today, uh, this CLE came out of a discussion, an ongoing discussion uh, that has been part of what uh, John Bruning. From the advocates has been really tracking uh, a lot of the litigation that's been happening in the Eighth Circuit and including some really exciting stuff that's going on with controlled substances. So um, uh, my understanding is that John has been working on a practice guide and thought that it might be really useful for us to have a CLE. And so uh, we here at the Banger Center, myself included, and John Bruning decided to go ahead and host the CLE. Advocates for Human Rights, for those of you who don't know, is a nonprofit direct legal services organization uh, that represents people uh, in Minnesota or in, or in immigration courts here in Minnesota. And uh, John has really been a really uh, stalwart in terms of 
tracking and understanding what's going on with quite a bit of what's going on. And here he is. It's great. So John Bruning is a staff attorney with Advocates for Human Rights. He primarily uh, works with uh, quite a few of the detained population here in Minnesota. And that usually means people who have some sort of criminal record um, being held by people in ICE detention. Uh, and then we hopefully will, she'll be able to join us in a little bit. We'll have Susan Jorgensen Flores. She's been a long time uh, immigration attorney here in the Minnesota area. She's for a while had been with the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, but she is now um, working for the Minnesota Public Defender's Office. And she uh, uh, supplies uh, immigration advice to criminal public defenders throughout the state of Minnesota and really helps um, provide uh, good legal counsel for those who are facing criminal crimes that may end up facing immigration consequences. And of course, we have our uh, first presenter, who is Lauren Butler, who is a student in my clinic. Um, and she's a law student. She's gonna, She's a 2L. She's currently working on a few cases through the Hennepin County Public Defender. And she is going to start us off with a bit of context and a little bit of history about uh, challenging drug convictions in immigration court and what's been happening with that. Uh, our next speaker after Lauren will be John Bruning, who's going to be helping us understand exactly what's been happening most recently in the Eighth Circuit and some exciting and really interesting uh, ways to challenge uh, criminal, excuse me, the removal based on crimes uh, involving controlled substances. And then our final speaker will be Susan Jorgensen Flores, and she's going to walk us through potentially what, uh, how these cases and how thinking about these drug crimes can impact uh, people at the criminal stage in terms of what's going on and impacting criminal strategy. All right, and we are going to reserve uh, some of our final time. We'll see how much we can reserve, depending on the tardiness of our start date on Q&A. So we're going to reserve the Q&A for the end uh, after everyone has finished the presentation, and then we can go from there. So thank you very much. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Lauren. All right. Hi, everyone. So as Linus said, I'll just start by getting some of the background to this issue. So the place where we'll begin is considering um, the, the definition of controlled substances and the way that they're defined in the Immigration and Nationality Act. So there is a definition of this term controlled substances that comes up in three different places in this act. But consistently, it always refers to the same statute, which is the Controlled Substances Act. So first, when defining um, reasons why a person would be deportable, the INA refers with drug convictions directly to this other statute using that citation, saying that um, when someone's deported on the grounds of a drug conviction, this is as it is defined in Section 102 of the Controlled Substances Act. The exact same thing comes up when the INA refers to reasons why somebody would not be eligible for a visa or for admission in Section 212. Again, with the same citation, when defining controlled substances, it refers to 21 U.S.C. 802. And then again, thirdly, with aggravated felonies and other grounds for deportation, the definition there refers to illicit trafficking in a controlled substance. 
But again, when talking about a controlled substance, this is as defined in Section 802 of Title 21. So then turning to this citation to the Controlled Substances Act, its definition states that a controlled substance means a drug or other substance or immediate precursor included in Schedule 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5 of Part B of the sub this subchapter. And then in that subchapter, we find lists of drugs that make up each of these federal schedules. So the federal schedules, the federal controlled substances are organized into these schedules. And then we see a similar type of structure looking to the way it's organized in Minnesota. Minnesota uses the same type of structure. It also has schedules which classify controlled substances. Those are found in 152.02. And then Minnesota often defines drug crimes also by referencing this, these specific state schedules. However, the Minnesota state schedules do include some drugs that are not in the federal schedule and are broader in that way. And immigration law uses the categorical approach. And what that means is that actual conduct is irrelevant to the inquiry as the adjudicator must presume that the conviction rested upon nothing more than the least of the acts criminalized under the state statute. So this means that there could be a possibility that a person convicted in Minnesota has not been charged with something included in the federal schedule and that would make them not deportable. And this comes from the fact that the Minnesota schedule, as I said, is broader than the federal schedule. So this was the first line of argument that was available with advocating for clients with drug convictions, that there was this categorical mismatch in the two. However, when raising that argument at the Eighth Circuit, we were not successful. However, what we'll be addressing today is that this is not the only way in which the Minnesota schedule is broader than the federal schedule. In fact, the Minnesota schedule when calling something methamphetamine and when the government federally, the federal government is calling something methamphetamine, that is also a way in which they are not talking about the exact same thing. The definition itself in Minnesota is also broader than the federal one. So before we arrive at that conversation today, I'm going to share some context involving the history of controlled substance litigation. So the Supreme Court has previously addressed differences between state and federal statutes in cases involving deportation on the grounds of criminal convictions related to controlled substances. I will refer to two cases today that set some background. So first is Lopez v. Gonzalez. And in that case, the court held that a difference in state and federal statutes made the possession no longer an aggravated felony. That case challenged controlled substance possession offenses on the grounds that they were not aggravated felonies because they are misdemeanors under the Controlled Substances Act. So that would make them not aggravated felonies, even if a state was charging them as a felony. In defining aggravated felonies, the INA has a list of different types of charges that would qualify, and it includes illicit trafficking in a controlled substance, including a drug trafficking crime as defined in section 924C of Title 18. And then looking to that section, it defines drug trafficking crime with reference to any felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act. So there, the court held that with a state offense, even if it was a felony at the state level, it was not a felony punishable under the Controlled Substances Act unless it prescribes conduct punishable 
as a felony under that federal law. So this case established that adjudicators, when they're deciding whether a controlled substance crime qualifies for deportation, they have to exclusively use the federal definition of the crime. They're not able to use a state definition that would make it a felony. Looking then to a later case, the second case I'll talk about is Maluli v. Lynch. In that case, the court did actually address this difference I started to introduce when a state and federal drug schedule are not exactly the same. There, Maluli had pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor, possession of drug paraphernalia, <laughs> and this was based on having a sock with four orange tablets inside it. So while his criminal charge and plea agreement both did not specify what the substance was, he had acknowledged that it was Adderall prior to the charge and the plea agreement. ICE officers arrested him as being deportable, but at the time, like the one I described currently in Minnesota, the Kansas schedule then was broader than the federal one. It included at least nine substances that were not in the federal schedule, although Adderall was included in both. There, the court held that in order to trigger removal, government must connect an element of the non-citizen's conviction to a drug defined in the federal schedule. So in Maluli's case, the paraphernalia conviction was not such a charge because it did not include a drug defined in the federal schedule as an element. It only required that there were controlled substances. And as I said, in Kansas, that could have been a drug not in the federal schedule, since the state schedule was broader. So that made his charge not removable. This background is what led national advocates, including those in Minnesota, to focus on language about state schedules being broader than federal schedules, which led to the challenge that did not succeed in the Eighth Circuit that I referred to before. But we are now pivoting to the argument that some of the named substances listed in state schedules are broader than in the federal schedules despite sharing the same name. And one example of that is methamphetamine. All right, well, thank you very much, uh, Lauren. And we're now gonna go ahead and pivot to John Bruning. And I believe John might have some slides for us um, and then we can go from there. So John, can you see? I'm, I'm not able to turn on my video or share my screen, <laughs> but okay. I will get started um, anyway. Um, so I've got, I think, the unenviable task of um, teaching everyone organic chemistry in about 15 minutes. Um, full disclosure, I don't have a technical training in chemistry. I took AP chemistry in high school about 20 years ago. So I'm um, going off of um, a lot of independent work now, but um, at least cover kind of the broad contours of this. Um, as uh, Lauren mentioned, um, there's been a pivot towards um, trying to find other ways to challenge um, controlled substance convictions um, in the immigration context. Um, and thankfully we've had a lot of help from um, other, um, other attorneys, primarily the Federal Defender's Office here in Minnesota, um, who have had the resources um, and the ability to do a lot of the heavy lifting of this um, enlisting expert chemists um, and other people to really define these, these arguments um, and have litigated this to the Eighth Circuit um, where um, um, we've actually had a fair amount of success, surprisingly, um, given what we normally encounter at the, at the Eighth Circuit. Um, so I think now I can share my screen, so kind of jump into this. 
So kind of setting the, the stage here for um, the Owen decision, um, we have a couple of cases that are important to talk about. First is um, Gonzalez v. Wilkinson, uh, which came out of the circuit about a year and a half ago. Um, it's not um, a unique decision fully nationally, but it is, um, I think, fairly groundbreaking for the Eighth Circuit. Um, so looking at um, a marijuana conviction um, in a criminal case, um, <clears throat> or actually, excuse me, in an, in an immigration case, um, the Eighth Circuit held that um, the realistic probability test outlined in uh, Duenas Alvarez, um, where we have to show that um, a statute of conviction would, would realistically cover or include conduct that's outside of the federal generic definition, um, the plain text of the statute um, is sufficient to show that realistic probability. So in this case, because the marijuana statute at issue um, had elements of marijuana plant that were excluded by the federal statute, um, the plain terms of the statute rendered, um, rendered it overbroad um, and were not sufficient to, um, to sustain a charge of removability. Um, and this is a, a cornerstone case going forward with um, with these drug cases. There's also a Ninth Circuit case um, that's kind of sitting in the kind of the elephant in the corner um, that's caused a lot of problems, especially challenging methamphetamine convictions uh, up until now. Um, this was a California case. California law um, criminalizes um, two isomers of methamphetamine, geometric and optim, uh, optical, um, but the optical only the optical isomer is criminalized by the federal government. Um, so the argument was because California criminalizes a geometric isomer as well, this, it's therefore overbroad. But um, there's a lot of um, evidentiary hearings and other um, exploration by the court and by district court here, and they, um, they came to the conclusion that there is no geometric isomer of methamphetamine. Like it's, it cannot physically, chemically exist. Um, and therefore, there was no realistic probability um, that the statute was overbroad. Um, unfortunately, judges haven't looked very closely at the contours of this decision um, and how it's different in other states and just pointed to Rodriguez Gamboa and said, methamphetamine is not overbroad, no matter what your state statute says. And then the final piece of this um, thing into Owen are two cases out of the Seventh Circuit, um, De La Torre and Ruth, um, like Rodriguez Gamboa. These are criminal cases um, looking at sentencing enhancements for a uh, serious drug conviction. Um, where there wasn't really any investigation, again, into the isomers uh, or what existed, um, but with regard to cocaine, just came to the conclusion, well, there's a, they, they include other isomers that the, fed, the feds don't. The government hasn't rebutted this with any evidence, unlike in Rodriguez-Gamboa. Therefore, these are overbroad. So this gets us to Owen. Um, so Owen, again, deals with a serious drug offense enhancement under um, the Armed Career Criminal Act, um, looking at the federal statute defining cocaine, which includes its optical and geometric isomers. But because this was a Minnesota conviction um, that's, a, that's in play here, the Minnesota statute just references the isomers of cocaine, full stop. It doesn't say which kinds of isomers, it just says the isomers. The court looked at this and said, you know what, this is actually pretty unambiguous. It says the isomers, they have the opportunity to limit this, but they, the, the state legislature chooses not to. Therefore, we have to take them at their word and include all isomers in this. Um, Owen relied on um, Gonzalez to basically cut off the government's arguments uh, regarding the, the realistic probability that the government would um, prosecute conduct um, or 
you know, prosecute possession of uh, a different type of isomer um, because, the state's, because the statute is clear on its face. Um, and I think full disclosure, um, it is very unlikely that, um, that these other isomers would be criminalized, like in practice, that you would be arrested and charged and convicted of possessing one of these um, overbroad isomers. But that's not really our problem, right? That's, that's on the government. Like they've, they've written a statute this way. If they exercise prosecutorial discretion to not prosecute, that doesn't really affect the, the categorical analysis here. Um, what's also important is that the court here, um, as opposed to the Seventh Circuit cases, um, did acknowledge the existence of other isomers, overbroad isomers. So it gets around the the, the Gamboa issue of um, not, you know, not believing that there that there is an isomer that fits this definition or that would be overbroad. In fact, um, the federal defenders put on an expert witness to testify to say, look, there's actually all these other types of isomers that aren't covered by the federal definition. Um, these are things that exist in, in nature, or at least are chemicals that, you know, that you can buy. Um, these aren't just, you know, made only in a lab for experimentation, like these are real things. Um, therefore, it's overbroad, and the court agreed with that. Um, so next we get to um, USV Myers, um, which basically applies Owen, um, but to Missouri. Um, so again, um, the federal statute of cocaine includes optical and geometric isomers. Missouri has a little bit different language than Minnesota, but it still includes the quote-unquote isomers full stop, no, no further clarification. Um, what's interesting about Myers is that the government um, started raising an argument here that there's a regulation um, in Missouri um, that's meant to conform um, the state drug schedules to the federal schedules. Um, so that when the feds change part of the definition uh, or include an isomer, take out an isomer, that Missouri automatically conforms to that. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a compelling argument in a way, but what the court really honed in on here is that the regulation isn't the statute, right? The regulation allows some government official to change the statutes, but it doesn't really have an effect on, on prosecutor, you know, prosecutorial discretion, what state um, prosecutors are doing, and it doesn't change the, the plain language of the statute itself. The regulation, is really secondary to the, to the statute. There's a couple of other cases pending in the Eighth Circuit um, that I think are worth keeping an eye on. Um, there are um, three H's, Henry, Heard, and, and Hebert. Um, Henry is a Minnesota conviction for methamphetamine. Um, Heard is Minnesota conviction for um, MDMA. Um, prior to an amendment in 2011, um, I'll come back to in a second. Um, and Hebert deals with Missouri methamphetamine and Texas cocaine um, on a little bit different posture for review. Um, interestingly, Henry and Heard were both argued the day that the Owen decision came out. Um, Owen came out while Heard was being heard. <laughs> um, so there was, so it wasn't addressed. Nobody knew about it um, as argument was happening. Henry came pretty soon after, and by that time, everyone had learned about Owen. Um, and the government opened up its argument um, and said, "Look, we're bound here. We." There, we don't really have an argument. Owen controls. Um, it's been about four months now. We're still waiting on a decision, so it should be imminent. Um, but we'll see what happens. Um, one other note about Heard is that um, Minnesota um, MDMA statute was amended in 2011 uh, to try to conform um, the definition of hallucinogens, including MDMA, to the federal definition. Um, but I think what's kind of interesting in Heard, and I think will be an issue to watch out for 
is kind of retroactivity. So um, looking at whether the, um, obviously the, the pre-2011 Minnesota statute applies, but which federal version are we applying it to? Um, I don't think that there's really that much of a change um, in play, but I think th that will be addressed. Um, and that is something that's gonna be a bigger issue in other cases. So uh, let's jump into the chemistry here. Um, this will be, I think the fun part, I'll try to speed through this as quickly as we can um, to leave room for some questions at the end. Um, basically what everything here comes down to is isomerism. Um, isomers are two um, chemical substances which have the same chemical formula, um, but their atoms are connected differently um, or arranged differently in space. Um, so it's really referring to the relation. So it's a relationship between the two. Um, a substance isn't on its own an isomer. Um, you really have, you take one substance and you take another substance and you, um, and they may be isomers of each other um, or kind of in, in that relation. Um, there's two big types of isomers, stereoisomers, um, the structural isomers. Stereo deals with kind of the 3D arrangement. There isn't a big change to it, but there's something that's kind of twisted or flipped um, that makes it different. Um, constitutional or structural isomers um, have to do with the order of atoms or um, kind of substituent parts of the of the molecule that really have a can have a really big impact on the nature of the the chemical. Within stereoisomers, um, we have a couple of different types: optical um, and then geometric. There's a few other types um, that are much less common, um, but it's something to pay attention to because these do make it overbroad. Um, so things like conformers, rotomers, anomers, atropisomers. Um, again, very kind of nuanced stuff. Um, they're not very common, but you know, you may see other, other things like that and they are overbroad if they do, um, they do come up. Structural isomers um, are skeletal or chain isomers, um, position or positional isomers, functional isomers. Um, those are kind of the big ones that you'll see and that we'll maybe talk a little bit about today. Um, and then metamers, tautomers, ring chain isomers are also um, some other ones that may come up. Um, and just to be clear, as we move on, um, as Linus mentioned, I am working on a practice advisory that's imminently forthcoming. <laughs> um, it's taking a lot of work to get through all this, but the, that's gonna have a much deeper dive into all of this and how this works. Um, so looking at optical isomers, um, these are non-superimposable mirror images. The best example is your left hand and your right hand, right? Um, they are opposite of each other. Um, you can't rotate your right hand to fit over your, your left hand exactly. They're, they're flipped. Um, so here we have um, uh, bromochlorofluoromethane um, in two of its optical isomers. Um, the kind of squiggly line is bond, chemical bonds that are going away from you. The black triangles or bonds that are coming towards you. Um, and you can see that they're arranged 3D um, in a way that um, is opposite. Um, it can't just be rotated to, to make the same substance. Geometric isomers um, are rotated around a rigid connection of some sort um, so that um, you know, it can't, the molecule can't just twist around a bond. Um, there has to be like a much more firm bond between them um, where if it does flip, it, it stays that way. Um, so in this case, we have dichloroethene. Um, so it's um, C2H2Cl2. Um, there's a double bond in the middle. Um, and you can see that it's rotated around a double bond so that the molecule can't twist on its own. It's necessarily a different substance. Um, and just kind of a point on kind of nomenclature here or, or kind of how these 
Diagrams work um, kind of each point of contact between lines is uh, typically a carbon atom um, or the end of the line if there isn't another molecule indicated as a carbon atom. It's just kind of a shorthand to, to simplify these. Um, positional isomers done, getting into um, the structural isomers. Um, these are often also often um, included in either the federal or state schedules. Um, so you'll see these fairly commonly. Um, basically, you have what's called a functional group. It's kind of a group of atoms or a single atom um, or a, a type of bond um, that gives a different chemical properties or that, that kind of lends a chemical property to the overall molecule or substance. Um, and when that functional group moves to a different location, um, it creates a different, um, a different substance, right? Um, so on the left, we have um, butene um, and butene. Um, you can see either from the top diagram um, or from the bottom one, which is a, an even more simplified version, um, that the that movement in that double bond of those double lines um, makes it a different, different, um, different substance. Um, on the right, we have propanol and isopropyl alcohol. Um, same thing, the, the oxygen um, or OH molecule um, within that substance is moving from the end of the carbon chain to kind of the middle, and it's causing the carbon chain to branch out into three parts um, that you can see from both the top and the bottom diagrams, kind of how that, how that works. Um, so now we're moving on to isomers that are very rarely criminalized, um, at least at the federal level. There's no reference to these in, this, in that statute, uh, but these would fall under the broad definition of isomer um, as it's included in a lot of state, um, state statutes. So the first is a skeletal or chain isomer. Really what we're looking at here is how the, the kind of carbon skeleton um, or chain, um, really kind of the backbone of the molecule, um, is arranged differently, even with the same chemical formula. So on the left or on the top on the right side, I uh, was butane and then the right one is methylpropane. Um, you can see that you're going from a straight line um, of three or excuse me, four carbon atoms to instead of branch, um, where you have one carbon in the center and then three around it um, with hydrogens all around those. So you're looking at really like the, the, the shape of the molecule changing based on how the carbon is being arranged. Next, we have functional isomers, which are also very common um, in rendering substances overbroad. Um, so this means basically that there's a change in um, part of the molecules or one of the atoms moves somewhere else to create a different functional group. It destroys one functional group and creates a new one. Um, on the left, we have um, butene again, um, and then also cyclobutane. Um, so instead of there being a double bond in the middle there, it breaks down into this um, square shape, um, or kind of this circular um, circular shape. Um, so instead of having like these kind of component parts, like um, carbon with three hydrogen atoms, it moves it to um, carbons with two hydrogen atoms and that changes really how the molecule functions or kind of how each of those, comp what, those what those component parts are. Um, and then on the right, we have ethanol um, and dimethyl ether. Um, we're seeing like the oxygen molecule move from one part to another. And it's again, breaking up the, the carbon molecules um, to create a different um, different functional groups. Um, so again, you can see this in either the top diagram or the bottom ones um, where the, ox the oxygen exists kind of in relation to the rest of um, the molecule, but it's really changing how, how the molecule itself functions. Um, distinguishing isomers is, is kind of tough. Um, you know, looking at some of these, I think there's a good case to be made that a couple different types of isomer classifications could apply. 
um, right? Like looking at the, the very last one on the dimethyl ether on the very far right versus ethanol, there is also a change in the, in the carbon structures, carbon skeleton. And I think that there's um, a good argument to be made that it would also be a skeletal um, isomer. This came up in a, a case in the 11th circuit a few years ago, uh, Pfeiffer. Um, person was charged with possessing an isomer um, of a controlled substance um, that I think it's a hallucinogen. So um, positional isomers are included in, in, that, def in that federal definition. Um, under, there's a, a regulatory definition for positional isomer um, in the DEA regulations um, that under that definition, the substance was included. Um, but the defendant enlisted an expert um, who teaches at a university, brought in chemistry textbooks and explained how kind of the chemistry world understands these isomers. Um, and he said, no, actually look, like this doesn't, this doesn't like one of the DEA definition isn't what we commonly use. It's slightly different. Um, and following our common definition, this isn't a positional um, isomer. This is actually a skeletal isomer. Um, so the court vacated his conviction um, and remanded it to the district court uh, for a jury to consider multiple definitions of the isomer and figure out which one is more correct and figure out how those apply to um, the facts of the case. Um, but I think that's important to really enlist an expert in these to really show like this is this is how this works, like this is what's what's happening here. Um, so the federal drug schedules, as we talked about, um, Isomers are generally limited to the optical isomer, except for Schedule One hallucinogens, which include optical, geometric, and positional, um, and cocaine, which is optical and geometric. Um, some specific chemicals also have a separate definition kind of baked into their definition. Um, so for example, amphetamine often has like its own thing where it just says the optical isomer. It doesn't really control this definition overall, but there's some things like that that are that are mismatched with the, the general definition. On the other hand, uh, well, I should say some states, Iowa, Kansas, and Wisconsin, um, Iowa being the only one that's in the A circuit, but Kansas and Wisconsin, I think we, we see a number of um, convictions um, in our circuit, um, have an almost identical definition. Um, they have the same kind of limiting language about or definition of isomer. Um, there's a few exceptions to this. Um, so for example, Kansas um, defines caffeine a little bit different than the feds do. Um, but for the most part, it's the exact same definition. Everything is optical except for hallucinogens, which are optical, geometric, and positional, um, and cocaine, which is optical and geometric. Um, but a lot of other states, um, pretty much all of the other states in, the, in our circuit, um, don't have a limiting definition, um, except for possibly in some individual um, circumstances. So as long as there's an overbroad isomer, and as long as um, isomers are included in that in the definition of that substance, um, most substances are going to be overbroad. Um, so Arkansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota all have statutory schemes like this that are over-inclusive, that include all isomers. Um, so again, it's really a matter of, of kind of double-checking the statutes, but also make, also doing some research to figure out um, if there is a, an isomer that's outside of that. Um, so kind of a, a quick and dirty list of overbroad substances. Um, I'm working on a much longer list of these for the PRAX advisory, um, but these are kind of the ones that I've I worked my way through. Um, so we have um, Alprazolam, Rosanex, um, Adderall, caffeine, um, which is one of the component substances in COT, um, cocaine, methamphetamine, um, MDMA, um, and THC. 
um, all of which are overbroad in at least some states in, in the circuit. Um, amphetamine is defined very narrowly in most cases to just optical at the state level, um, as well as the feds. South Dakota is the only one that doesn't do that. Um, THC, this is an incomplete list of states. Um, I think the, that list is going to be quite a bit longer once I finish getting through it. Um, as I noted, MDMA, um, that or some of those definitions changed um, in Minnesota um, in 2011. Um, there's also a number of asterisks kind of throughout here, um, noting that um, or for states where it's kind of fuzzy. Um, so like cocaine um, in a couple of different states, um, the way that it's defined, I think that there's some arguments to be made that um, that is overbroad. Um, even outside um, of kind of the, the isomer um, kind of realm. Um, so Iowa, Kansas, um, Nebraska um, include a, a kind of a substituent component in um, cocaine that's um, expressly excluded by, um, by the A circuit. And there's actually an A circuit case recently out of Iowa finding that the Iowa definition of cocaine is overbroad, even though its definition on isomers matches the federal definition. Um, for a lot of hallucinogens as well, Nebraska, I think Nebraska and North Dakota, especially, um, there's a very, the language is kind of funky. It doesn't model um, how they define isomers in the same way that the feds or most other states do. Um, they say it includes its, its isomers, including the optical, geometric, and, um, and positional. And I think that there's a good argument to be made that this is inclusive as opposed to like just specifying. Um, so I think you can argue that it's overbroad, but I, I think it's a little bit less clear than in other cases. I wanted to kind of go back to how um, the isomers work um, in specific cases. Um, so we have methamphetamine and a number of its isomers here. Um, so methamphetamine is in the top left corner. This is what a, it looks like kind of in um, structural notation. Um, to the right, S-cocaine is an optical isomer of methamphetamine. Um, it's a little hard to make out, but the kind of the dashed line uh, means that um, the location of the nitrogen atom is kind of flipped um, on that structure. So instead of it kind of coming towards you, it's going away from you. Um, and that's what makes that non-superimposable mirror image. As I mentioned before, there's no geometric isomers of methamphetamine. Um, I was hoping to find a, a better example with geometric ones to show. Um, and then those got a much, much more complicated and, and harder to, to demonstrate. So I um, unfortunately wasn't able to do that. Um, but we also have a number of um, positional isomers here. Um, Fentramine, um, which I believe is actually separately um, um, controlled um, on the schedules. Um, but you can see it's just, just kind of different how it works. There's a different bond coming off of one of the central carbons. Um, the nitrogen um, is connected to two hydrogens instead of a carbon at the other end of it. Um, so you really do have like a different position of this. I think, again, there's maybe an argument to be made that this is um, skeletal or uh, potentially um, functional, um, but I don't think that's, we need to get to that point. Um, Fenpromethamine um, also, um, you can see just kind of the arrangement of the atoms, um, a different carbon or carbon branches at a different point. Um, and you have a different hydrogen connection to a nitrogen. Um, isopropyl benzyl, benzylamine, um, which is also called fake ice, has very similar chemical properties to methamphetamine, except for um, kind of the, the drug component of it. It's a very, very similar um, kind of melting or boiling points. Um, it looks the same. Um, it's very similar physically, but just has a different um, chemical um, kind of reaction. 
Um, again, you can see the carbon branches in a different point, nitrogen moves. Um, so this is kind of what we talk about with uh, positions. Um, and finally, we have four uh, pencil pyridine, um, which is a functional isomer. So you can see you have like this ring structure, what's called a benzene ring, uh, which is six carbons. Um, the nitrogen moves into one of those carbon positions and it changes that ring to something completely different, um, a completely different functional group. Um, and then the carbon gets extra carbon gets moved to the end, the nitrogen gets, gets moved as well. So um, it has very, very different properties, but it's a functional isomer. It's an isomer that um, is not optical, geometric, or positional, depending on um, statutes you're dealing with. But I think realistically, you know, the feds criminalize optical isomer. You have um, four isomers here that are non-optical that render methamphetamine overbroad. Um, so basically, unless your state limits it to um, to optical only, um, methamphetamine is is going to be overbroad. Um, some quick practice pointers before I turn this over to Susan. Um, we've had a couple of good decisions here in um, at the Fort Snelling Immigration Court, um, where we've had um, proceedings terminated, where the only charge of removability was um, methamphetamine conviction out of North Dakota and South Dakota, um, and the judge followed. Owen found that it was it was controlling. Um, I know meth, uh, Minnesota methamphetamine has also come up. It's um, I think it's still pending on a remand from the BIA. Um, so we'll see that at some point. Uh, we've also had good luck having people found to be not subject to mandatory detention in Minnesota, even if they're separately removable. Um, so they've been granted bond under um, under Owen. Uh, as I mentioned before, make sure to compare the sta state statute at the time of the offense or conviction with the current version of the federal statute because states are modifying their statutes, partly to just include more conduct or to take out some conduct or to match it to the federal definition or to do something completely different. Um, so these get amended like almost annually. Um, so really important to, to go back and check, make sure that, um, you know, that you're looking at the statute at the time um, that's relevant. Um, use a chemistry or pharmacology expert as needed um, to help convince the court or explain to the court how this works um, that there are these isomers that are outside of, the, of what's criminalized by the, by the federal schedule. Um, one good point of uh, reference is um, universities, right? Um, to look, you know, to talk to um, chemistry professors um, or, you know, pharmacy professors um, and so on. Um, we've also seen arguments from the government about this relating to language. Um, within the statute. Um, they cite to US v. Brown um, in a circuit case from 2010, but I think um, it's actually more helpful to us. Like Brown makes clear that analog substances don't fall, in, fall within this definition. It, it can't be read that expansively to include overbroad isomers. Um, it just relates to the conduct as opposed to the actual identity of the substance. Um, and also these kind of conforming regulations that are meant to match the the state statute to the federal one uh, is coming up, I think, in Myers, or they come up in Myers, excuse me. Um, it's kind of addressed retroactively in Owen. Um, ICE is making these arguments, um, but I think Myers makes clear that these don't go anywhere. Um, as a last point, um, PubChem is a um, source from um, the, the federal government that has lots of details about all sorts of substances, um, including diagrams, other chemical properties. It makes it a lot easier to find isomers. Um, there's another website, Cayman Chemical, that um, also allows you to search for isomers, uh, but PubChem is, is extremely helpful, and I'll include some more information about that in the Prax Advisory. Um, so finally, the Prax Advisory, um, 
is coming out soon. <laughs> I hope in the next week or two. Um, we're going to post it on our, on our website, um, the Advocates for Human Rights, um, and probably as, as well over ELA and an AP NLG um, email lists. Um, and lastly, if you have successes challenging this immigration court, I want to hear about it. Um, or feel free to reach out um, if you have questions. Um, I have redacted briefing, redacted decisions, um, all the stuff that we can share um, to help you litigate this as well. Um, so I'll turn this over to, um, to Susan. Thank you, John. <clears throat> can I, hopefully everybody can hear me. Um, not sure you can see me. Let me see if I can do that. So hopefully everybody can hear me. Yes, I think so. Okay. So not a ton to add. And, you know, obviously John has done a brilliant amount of work on this and you know, it's still kind of an area in flux from the criminal defense point of view in terms of the intersection with immigration, right? So as his last slide showed, <clears throat> excuse me, there's, you know, we've had some successes. There's some appeals pending with the Board of Immigration Appeals. There's some more cases pending locally here with the Fort Snelling courts, which that comes down to from our point of view at the criminal defense level, there's still a lot of uncertainty for us as we're crafting pleas and advising our clients as to the immigration consequences that they're gonna face when dealing with these controlled substance crimes, right? So that being said, yes, everything is looking very good. We are terribly optimistic. I, for once, am optimistic that we might be seeing some very valuable and helpful changes coming to help our clients and potentially save them from being deportable or removable. But at this time, in terms of immigration, there's nothing really set in stone from my point of view and from what I understand. And I'll reiterate what John said there at the very end. Please share your stories. Um, I'm not in immigration court anymore, so I don't know exactly, you know, I don't have that day-to-day -day interaction with the different judges and DHS and what they're gonna appeal and what their position is. Right now, we know they are appealing some of these decisions from Maisie at least terminating, but we need to keep gathering that information to know what is happening, at least until we get something definitive um, from the BIA. So what we have changed or what I've changed in my practice, at least in dealing with these controlled substance crimes, is that where we have an option, right? So sometimes not that unusual that we'll get clients charged with two felonies, controlled substance crimes, you know, maybe one is related to possession of cocaine and one's related to fentanyl, right? Um, hold on, I'm gonna try to share my video. It's not, I tried, <laughs> give me a second. Um, it's telling me I can't change and share my video. So um, anyway, I was just, you know, enjoy the black box that I am, I guess. Um, so what we're doing, we will then, I am advising, take that cocaine charge, right? We're going down on one or the other, right? There's no way that we're getting away from a felony conviction on a controlled substance charge. So we're going to take the cocaine option, right? Because we think, you know, we at least have good case law, good arguments, a decent path to arguing that it is not a controlled substance crime that's going to trigger removability. So that's what we're doing day to day. That's what I've, how we've changed our processing or our, our practice at this point. But at this point, that doesn't get us to the point where we can then say, great, our client's gonna plead to possession of cocaine. They're not gonna face removability at this point. I think you know, at this point, we are just in this area of optimism and area of flux is what I'm telling everybody. We are in a 
area, you know, a moment of fluctuation with the law. At this point, we are taking a meth con, and, you know, where the options are clear. We'll take a meth conviction. We'll take a cocaine conviction. But we're not quite to the point in where we can say that this is definitively not going to result in removability. Hopefully, we'll get there soon. But at this point, we cannot say that, in my opinion. Um, where it gets very complicated, and I'll say then, if we're dealing with other controlled substances, for years it's been our practice, you know, keep the plea colloquy vague. If you can avoid naming the controlled substance in the plea, if you can avoid referencing the controlled substance in the, you know, in the trial and the transcript, do whatever you can to avoid naming the controlled substance. Has always been our practice for years now, hoping and praying that someday, you know, as the arguments that Lauren originally alluded to at the very beginning. You know, we'll get that overbroad argument. We know it's failed before, but you never know. So we've always tried to, I mean, I've always tried to leave the record vague so that maybe someday that, you know, the tides can always turn with case law. You just never know. So for years, we've been trying to keep the record vague, leave it at least so that the client has that argument open to them, even though we've know it's, we know it's been a failing argument, but it's something. So now if we have any of the substances that were not listed by John as being overly, you know, overly broad, we're still sticking with that, keep the record vague. Um, but I am, you know, if we have the meth or the cocaine, we are going with that plea straight up. Where we're having difficulty, or I personally have difficulty in advising is, you know, now when we're in a situation where we have a safe plea or a potentially safe plea versus a conviction for cocaine, but we know, you know, we'll take a hit on one crime of moral turpitude for an LPR, for example, right? So we're safe today, but then if they get pinged on a shoplifting tomorrow, they're going to be facing removability, then what is our best option? And it's really difficult in that situation. Right now, all we can do is do our best to lay it out for the clients. Like, this is exactly what you're facing. And we have to try to get our clients to understand these options. And I think John probably, you did an awesome job in presenting that, but probably lost most of us at some point along the way. And now we're, we're charged with the job to make sure our clients understand their options before entering a plea or before going to trial. And it's very difficult to where we are right now, right? But that's what we're seeing. Um, you know, it's always tough to, you know, what we can advise our clients and what they have to decide, you know, that doesn't at the same time match up with us zealously advocating in the court and making sure we're, you know, we are always aiming for making the plea, the best plea and the plea with the most options for arguments to avoid removability. And then we still sometimes have to advise the client, you know, we've done the plea the best we can and as well as we can to give you these arguments, but, we still can't say removability isn't going to be an option or I mean, uh, reality in this situation. Um, not terribly helpful. Like I said, it's in a, it's just a weird position right now from my point of view or our point of view as you know defenders and criminal attorneys. But that's where we are right now. Hopefully, like you know, as you share some success stories, hopefully we'll get a good decision out of the BIA and we can shift. But for right now, that's what we're. That's what we're looking. That's what we're looking at, and that's how we've changed our practices. You know, just as Owen's come out, and then looking forward to some of these other decisions. Okay. Um, I think we can open it up to questions at this point. 
Yeah, we only have a couple more minutes, but I think we can go ahead and you can either um, use the Q&A function or it looks like there's quite a few good discussion coming on on the chat as well. Um, there's some uh, promises to be sharing of briefing, which I think is really great. And obviously, uh, John is trying to compile as many decisions as they come and how that can be applied. And so I think this is as it's been clear uh, from the discussion, both by Susan and by John, that this is a changing area and we'll, we'll see really what happens in the next uh, few months. But if anyone has any other specific um, questions, please go ahead and either put them in the chat, put them in the Q&A. There is an evaluation form uh, that we're gonna be sending out that will have the CLE code. Um, so just uh, give me a moment and I will go ahead and post that in a second. Um, and then that, uh, and we will also be posting the slides that um, that John also has discussed. And we'll see what we can share in terms of the practice advisory. Once John's finished with that, that will be shared as well. And so I've just gone ahead and posted our evaluation for the CLE, which has the CLE code in it. Um, and if there are any questions, uh, I don't see anyone right now. In terms of downloadable documents, they will be available on our events page in terms of the slides, as well as the eventual practice advisory that I think we are all now um, anticipating and, and holding with bated breath. Okay. So the question is to John, what about Kansas cocaine that made it over Braun? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I think the decision is actually out of Iowa, and I'm blanking right now on what the name of it is, but I can, um, uh, that will be in the practice advisory. Let me see if I can also find that very quickly. Um, <clears throat> but basically, there's kind of an, an extra element in the federal definition. There's some exclusions from the definition of cocaine at the on the Fed side that haven't made their way into a lot of the states yet. Some states have started to make this change, um, but the but most of them haven't. Um, let me see, again, let me see if I can find this very quickly for everyone. Um, so the, that case is United States v. Perez. Um, I'll put it in the, the chat here. Um, it has to do with a substance called ioflupane, which is, a, I think, a derivative or component of, of cocaine. So in that case, it's not an isomer, it's a derivative. Is that right, John? Yeah, so it's much more straight categorical approach. It's kind of matching statutes as opposed to looking at like isomerism. Awesome. All right, well, I think that uh, does it for the time here. I wanna thank everyone uh, for their patience and really thank our panelists, um, Lauren, John, and Susan for being able to join with us. It does look like this is a really popular uh, topic, and hopefully this will give us some tools to go ahead and start preventing people from being deported for drug crimes. All right. Thank you, everybody. And yes, be on the lookout for both the practice advisory and the slides should be available on the events page on our Binger Center website uh, forthcoming. All right. Thank you, everybody. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, 
for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.